Um, thank you so much for having us. We are here today by the grace of God and because of the power of Jesus Christ. We are not extraordinary people. We are not anything particularly special. But what we have seen in Lesotho is God's heart for those that people think are too far gone, that people call impossible, and who actually believe that their life is over themselves. They've lived that way for so long. They've occupied that place at the bottom of society for so long that they've just accepted that that's who they are and that's all they were created to be. And I came to Lesotho as an accident. Um, I went for two years. I was supposed to help with the Lesotho elections in 2012. But as I was walking up and down the main road each day, I was confronted with these, these sites, these pictures that um, you just saw on the screen. And to be honest, my first reaction was to feel completely overwhelmed because it really looks and feels impossible. And to begin working with other organisations that had worked with kids on the street for years, they would tell you stories of the multitudes of things that had been tried and failed and tried and failed because people believe that these children can't change, that they want to be on the street or something is holding them there, and it is. But what we discovered was that often it's tied to identity. That what begins as a situation that a child has nowhere to live turns into who they are and how they relate to other people. So they begin to accept and embrace this position as someone that deserves only to be given a handful of bread or to be um, interacted with only as a, a beneficiary of a program. But long gone are any notions of being somebody's friend <laughs> or being someone who has something to contribute to society. And so God put it on our heart, actually. This is far more than your purpose. This is not just about me calling you to do something. This is about their purpose. That every single person in this world was created by God for a reason. And there was something inside of people that God wanted to bring out. And that began our mission to begin looking deeply inside these little kids to understand what were you created for? What are you here to do? What is inside of you that has been lost and that has been lied to? Because the fact is that Jesus Christ's vicious death and the way in which he was tortured and the way in which he rose again, it was necessary to overcome the levels of pain that we deal with in our world. It was necessary for him to die such a horrendous death to pay for what we had seen and the lives that these kids were living. But he paid for it because it was possible to redeem it. So what we have seen over the last seven years is 95% of children having left the streets and returned to their families. And you saw up on the screen that the government themselves were saying um, this, this place, this capital city of ours, looks completely different. You don't know what it was like five years ago. Right now you can walk from one end of Maseru to the other end of Maseru and not find a single child on the street. Wow. I always hate following Belinda. <laughs> Morning, church. One of the reasons we were so excited to come here 
was because you're a big part of this mm. and you might not know it. Uh, for a couple of years now, you have been together with us. Mission is us, together. So th the first thing we want to do is to thank you. All of this isn't something happening far off. We are all connected to it. And quite literally, it doesn't happen without churches like you, without the sacrifices you make to let it happen. And you'll hear some more about uh, just how you have helped this year uh, when things were at their very worst. Uh, you have enabled Sapeo and our team to be our very best. So thank you so much. What we want to do is to help you understand how God has spoken to us and some of the truths that he's put in our heart to inspire us and to keep us going in doing what we're doing. As Belinda said, we are completely ordinary and average, but God's power in ordinary people does extraordinary things, right? So I often tell my team we get the great job of standing up here and looking like we get credit for great things, but that's not the case. It is God and God alone. That is the whole story of the gospel that a supernatural God has given very ordinary and undeserving people his power and he shares his Holy Spirit with us. So I hope to encourage you as you see just how much God's power can rest on your life and on my life to see his purpose established on the earth. There was a, a scripture that I read about a year before I moved to Lesotho. And that scripture was just one of those. You know how sometimes you see something as if it's the first time you've seen it and it sticks. This was one of those scriptures for me. And I felt like it was God saying to me, this is what I want to do. And so for a whole year before I went to Lesotho, I was aware of um, children on the street then because Belinda had gone ahead of me. And I started reading and proclaiming this every day and praying it over children. And it's... In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, I'm not sure if we can get it on the screens. So this is a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah about Jesus. It was telling about the coming Messiah and what he would be like. And this is spoken in the voice of Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favour has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Every day I would read this and say, God, that is for them. They have mourned, but you will give them joyous praise. They have suffered, but God, you are going to release them. This scripture here was talking about Jesus and what he would do. Jesus came to set things right. You don't have to look very far to see that there is so much injustice in the world, things that are not right, things that are unfair. What this scripture tells us 
is that the coming of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection sets all of that right. He comes to bring truth and proclaim justice over things that are wrong. It tells us that the evil that we see in our world breaks God's heart. It is against his will. And he sent his son not only to save our sins, but to set injustices right again. Here's what we learn from this scripture. God's power always accomplishes a purpose. The opening line of that scripture is, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. Why? To bring good news to the poor. Sometimes we can think that anointing is just for anointing's sake. Or we think that there's power in good worship alone. Or if the preachers start shouting that that's power. God's power is always to do something. It is an equipping for a work. And that work is always for his purpose. He gives us power to do what he desires to do on the earth, to set things right again. God's anointing, his enabling power is on us. This scripture is about Jesus, yes, but we read later in the Old Testament that, sorry, in the New Testament that God pours out his Holy Spirit and we call that an anointing. That is on us and we can learn from this scripture what that anointing is all about. Firstly, we are anointed to do something. Jesus was anointed to bring good news to the poor. For Jesus, that was bringing good news. That is the gospel. We're also anointed for someone. We are anointed to do something and we're anointed for someone. We read here that the anointing was not just to carry out good works. Those good works were for the benefit of people. Every single time God put his power on someone, it was for people. You look at Moses, who was given great power to part the sea and walk through it. Why? People were in bondage. Jesus put his, so God put his power on Jesus. Why? So that we could be saved. When God anoints us, it is for the benefit of people and it is for righting wrongs on the earth. For Jesus, that someone was the poor, it was the brokenhearted, it was captives, it was prisoners, it was those who mourn, and he was declaring a new day. The Lord's favour has come, beauty for ashes, joy instead of mourning. As we were just singing, the death and resurrection of Jesus brings a new order. And we get the privilege of living in that new order, carrying that power and setting things right in the world. The purpose of power is for people. The purpose of power is for people. Right? You know it's true because it has three Ps in it. The purpose of power is for people. I pray, Lord, that your anointing will be so strong on us that your purpose may be seen in the world. Imagine if we can carry God's power in such a way that his purpose is revealed on the earth and all around us. We are seeing it. God is doing a work in our city. It is for people. He loves people. He cares about people. Not just the big important things, he cares about the little things that we go through. That is who he is. The Holy Spirit within you has a cry for the world. 
What's he saying to you? God's Holy Spirit is within you, crying out for this world around us, crying out for injustices, for mourning, for people who are broken, people who feel they don't belong, people who feel their lives are over, people who want their life to be over. The Holy Spirit within you has a cry for them. In 1 Peter 4.10, they put it like this. Each one, so that includes you, that includes me, each one has received some spiritual gift. You have received a spiritual gift. How good's that? Each one has received some spiritual gift. He should use it, how? To serve others, to serve one another. This is why I love church. God hasn't given me everything I need. God hasn't given Belinda everything she needs. God hasn't given you, as an individual, everything you need. But God has given us everything we need. Right? It's his desire that we would serve one another with our gifts and with our strengths and with our abilities and with our time and with our love. God designed us to be in community that way, that we can meet, in each, other, meet each other's needs here in church, but we can also do it out there. God has put something in you for others, for others who think they could never walk into a place like this. God's given you something for them, and it's his love and it's his power, and his power brings salvation. So it's us together, DLC. How cool is that? We're that connected, right? Gee, we love you. So we want to talk a bit about how we do what we do. We want to give you an introduction beyond a four-minute video about the work that Sapeo does, all of our different programs that we run, uh, the people that we're so privileged to serve alongside with and enter love. So, with all of that in mind, with what Belinda said about God creating people for purpose, right? More peas. This is truth this morning. How do we do what we do? Purpose is the foundation of every one of our programs in a couple of different ways. We aim to create an environment where everyone can come in, heal, and discover their purpose. That is both children and staff. Our entire model is built inside our local culture, Basutu culture. So every person on staff and every program we designed is designed within Basutu culture. So this is not an Australian program. This is very much the product of years of studying and working with Basutu to understand how do things work in your culture. So in Basutu culture, family is everything. Yeah. In Basutu culture, family is involved in solving problems. So if we have a child with nowhere to live, we call the family. We call the extended family, we have a family meeting, and amongst the family group, the cultural mechanism works to solve the problem. And what we find is God already has people in place to answer the problem. Because just as God is calling us, alongside us, he's calling others. And so what we do is look for those other people. 
Look for the people to work on staff. Look for the people in the child's world that can be involved in loving and taking care of that child. Yeah, f family is such a strength, right? In, in the first instance, you see a, a child on the street and you think, ah, the problem here is family, right? And it's true, but the solution is also family, right? Uh, and, and family isn't necessarily mum or dad, it can be aunt, uncle, it can be um, grandfather, grandmother. Uh, th there is a, such a level of connectedness there that we can plug into for the advantage of children. So we don't need to run um, a halfway house, we don't need to run anything institutional because there is such strength in family. So we are all about those who are excluded. It used to be we started out, we were about kids on the street. But then as our hearts grew, we started to get a heart. Anyone who's on the outside of society, that's who we are about. And we first seek a way to connect them back into culture. Um, because in a collective culture, if you're on the outside, things are bad for you. The first thing we need to do is connect you back in so you belong. So what that looks like is our team walks through some of the worst villages in, in Maseru and they begin to talk to people because everyone knows everyone. Mm. And people will come and tell our team, oh, there's a girl living there in the forest. Or there's an abandoned house over there where there's a group of young girls who are being prostituted. And we work inside the community to pick out and identify those people who are being exploited. And then we again start to, begin to build an understanding of their history and how they came to be this way. And one of the most powerful questions we ask the child is, tell me about the person who loves you most in the world. And they can often pick somebody. When I was 11, I lived with an aunt and she loved me. We'll go and find the aunt. And this way we are able to get children out, out of their exploitative situation, but back into their community and their family instead of keeping them separate and excluded. Because what we have seen is that there is no healing outside of relationship. People don't heal in isolation. People heal through love and through being included and through being connected. Giving and receiving, giving and receiving, loving and receiving. This is how healing occurs. So we connect our children back into their community. Yeah, and, and our team is expert at finding family. They, they do family tracing like you wouldn't believe. Kids will give the wrong name, the wrong village, and we'll still find the family. We go back and we go, we found them. And they, how did you do that? <laughs> we do it. We've traced people, even in South Africa, 500 kilometres away, We've somehow uh, found a phone number of a neighbour, called them, and if, I mean, sometimes that mother didn't want to be in touch with and you call again, she's changed her number, but we find people. <laughs> we found people on the other side of the country yeah. that um, didn't know the child was on the street. And remember, in those early days, we didn't have a vehicle, had nothing. So our team would go down to the, the main bus stop where all the buses come and waited for a bus to come from that village, hours and hours away, through the mountains. And she would stand there as they come off do you know this person? Do you know this person? Do you know this person? Someone would go, yeah, I do. Well, here's the chief's phone number. And we would trace kids all across the country. So really, there's no one that we have found no one for. Because no. our team is so good at tracing and finding family. And when we find family, we are always about fixing the root cause, okay? Fixing the real problem. Because the problem you see is not the real problem, yeah. right? If you ask a child, what are you doing here? little one, they go, oh, I don't have shoes for school, right? If we didn't ask the next question and the next question and the next question, we would go and buy shoes and think we've solved the problem. Who knows that buying shoes 
for a child who's on the street doesn't get them off the street, right? There's something bigger going on in their life that they don't quite know about yet, and we help find out what that is. And our team gets into the family, works out what was going wrong that there could be such a breakdown here. And for months and months and months, we work at restoring while the child is in our school and making that home a safe and healthy and nurturing place again. All about the root cause. We incentivize the right behaviors. All right? Doesn't sound significant, but we give incentives for the right behaviors. So we never would run um, big programs on the street, which would reinforce that being on the street is great. Right? If we turned up with big barbecues and said, hey, big barbecue for every child on the street, guess what? Being on the street sounds awesome because there's a free barbecue. Right? Um, kids from surrounding villages would then come to town and say, hey, I'm not eating like this at home. Being on the street looks really good. Right? So we incentivize the right behaviors. And I think you tell it really well how we get kids to want to come to school. Right? So after we uh, found families for every child on the street, that was the first thing. It took us nearly two years. After we did that, we started to get kids back into families and back into schools. But what we soon found was... Uh, schools are unable to deal with the really difficult behaviours and traumas that kids on the street have, um, that, they, that they come with. So kids on the street come to school, they're more aggressive <laughs> often than others, they may still be coming off drugs, um, they haven't been in school in a while, they're a lot older than their peers, and one by one, every single child that we got into a regular school dropped out. And we realised pretty early, if we don't fix education, these children are going to end up back on the street. So we started a school of our own. We have a primary school in Maseru, but the condition of attending our primary school is that you live in a family. So no one is allowed to sleep on the street and attend our primary school. We started with a very small group of kids who did go home and we got them back into families. What we saw was over the next couple of weeks and months, other children would arrive at school saying, I want to come to school too. Can you please help me find my uncle? He lives here. These were children who would have told you there was no family. <laughs> I'm here because there is no one. But they had heard such amazing things about our school that they had an incentive to go back home. And this snowballed. And this is how over the last five years, almost every single child who was on the street is now back home. Because if you're not at home, there's no place at school. Yeah, and we do hold that line pretty hard, especially in those first few months as transition. Someone will turn up to school, and by then we've found out where they were sleeping the night before, and they'd turn up as if nothing had happened. We say, oh, we already know, little one. Turn around, try again tomorrow, sleep at home tonight. And then it would get to the point, kids would get on the school bus, and they'd dob this, ah, this one was at home late last night. <laughs> right. So putting incentives about around things that keep kids safe and put them in the right direction, rather than incentivizing the wrong behaviours. The big one for us is identity, always identity. Glinda spoke about it earlier. We don't use this term street child. We are not a street child school. We never talk like that. Why? Because they would always carry that identity of the thing that we're calling. When we run programs for young women, we don't say, hey, come to our day for uh, abused young women. What does it do? Reinforces an identity. We always want to reinforce the right identity in people. And what is that identity? That they were created for a purpose, that God loves them. 
that he has good works for them to do, that they have a part to play in their community. Always a positive identity. I remember when we moved on to our new site, where we are, where we run school, um, kids from another school would pass by every day and somehow they knew what we were about and uh, the background of some of our kids and they'd yell out, oh, you're the street kids school, you're the street kids school. And the boys came and pretty distressed saying, hey, they're yelling this at us. And I think they were looking for my permission to go out and you know, take care of business. <laughs> um, I said, all right, um, that's pretty upsetting, isn't it? Said, yeah. I said, tell me, guys, is it true? And all of them, as forceful as you can imagine, uh-uh, mm-mm. That is not an identity that they carry. And the beginning of transformation starts with shedding an old identity. It's not who they are. The street doesn't fit them anymore, right? Because of a new identity. All of our programs appear as normal things that normal people do. And this comes out of that identity thing. So we invite people to come to school. Why? Because kids go to school. Now, we know, our staff know, we do little school and probably more rehabilitation and character work and transformation and family work and all of that. They think they come into school because that's what kids do. Young women that come to us, they're coming for training, right? And yes, we do all this other work in the background on helping them heal in their souls. But always, there is a normal reason that we interact with people that doesn't make them look like we are pitting them or that we are somehow above them. And this is actually one of the most powerful ways they find acceptance in community. Because if they were going to a street child school or if they were going to rehabilitation for women who had been prostituting, that's how their community would continue to see them too. But every time they get up, put on a school uniform and go to school, their community starts to see them as a regular child and a regular person. And they start to find acceptance and friendships as a normal accepted person within their village. Mm. Mm. So let's go through some of the programs that we're currently running. We'll let you know roughly what they're about and what we've been doing during coronavirus. Boys' school, we've told you a bit about. This is for children who have left the street and are now staying with family. Uh, mostly teenagers, right, maybe from 11 all the way through to 18, and they are doing primary school with us. Mostly they've never been to school before, and we create an environment where that's okay. They're learning to read with us, and they do sit the national primary exam. So the school is really built around rehabilitation. Yeah. Um, we have strong incentives even built into school. So you might have seen the uh, school uniform up on the video, the bow tie, blue shirt, did you, do you remember that one? Okay. That is earned by six months of sleeping at home. So when kids start at school, they have a goal in mind. They come wearing whatever they own for the first six months, which isn't, doesn't look great, but they have a goal in their mind. If I can stay at home for six months, if I can attend school for six months, if I can meet the criteria for six months, I'm going to earn that uniform. The day they earn that uniform, you get a different child. Yeah. Because they were not pitied. They were not beneficiaries. They, were earn they earned it. Yeah. They earn something, and they see themselves as capable, far more capable than they ever had. Totally. Yeah. Such a cool, cool moment to be there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You say, you weren't this little one. Yeah. You did this. Yeah. You are not receiving something because you're poor. You did this. Yeah. You can do this again. Last year, we opened up a girls' school. We thought, we're good at boys, and we're only ever going to be about boys. And then we started discovering, uh, within our village, yet very young girls who were uh, engaged in prostitution, um, who were being 
um, oppressed in all sorts of horrible ways by older men in the community. Um, and we wanted a way to be able to reach them. And as I was saying to you, we can't just say, all right, if you've been for a young girl prostituting, come and we're going to help you. Say, no, come to school. Um, and I think we have a couple of photos here um, of our girls' school uniform. Yeah, there they are. Again, they have to earn that as well. Um, the day the girls get their school uniform is, it's just crazy. There's tears and everything. It's, it's awesome. Um, yeah, you can leave this one up. So this is baptism uh, of one of our young girls last Easter, um, before Easter break. You know, they'd been with us just a few months from the beginning of the year and there was Bible study and all of them accepted Jesus on that day at Easter. And it wasn't just the prayer they prayed. They said, I'm not going back to that man. I'm not going back to do what I used to do because they understood that they had changed. They understood that they were valuable, that God loves them, that he sent his son for them and that he has a plan for their life. And here they are getting baptised. That's one of my favourite things to do. This, this beautiful girl was the girl from the forest yeah. who one year later got into the top high school in Maseru after finishing her exams with us yeah. in one year. Yeah. It was an absolute transformation. Yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> you going to do that one? Women's training? No, tutoring. tutoring. Okay. Hmm. Um, so the two years we spent on the street where we looked for families of kids, we discovered a pattern. We discovered that 80% of kids in, in the street came from one village. That was important, an important piece of information because it meant we knew where to go to stop the flow. So we went to government and we said, this is your problem, village. We want to move in. Give us land in the middle of this village. And they, they did. Bizarre. We got 6,000 square metres of land for $1. Yeah, 20, 20, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, 20 bucks. And I asked for a was discount it? on that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, <laughs> I didn't give it. But what we started to do was to work with the schools in the area to say, as soon as a child starts attending inconsistently, let us know. We'll intervene then. Because dropping out of or starting not to attend school well is the first sign that someone's going to go to the street. So we started a secondary program where children were incentivized to stay in their normal school, but provided they were attending consistently, we opened our school in the afternoons. And we could provide all the same family supports and other supports in our school in the afternoons. So we have several hundred kids every year who come through our school in the afternoon and they have stayed in their regular schools during the day. Yeah. And they're learning to read and they're just, they're doing great. <laughs> and our team is just seeing transformation in their lives. It's something to be seen, it really is. So during COVID, I mean, school has looked quite different for us because we haven't been able to meet. Uh, our restrictions have been very, uh, very severe, uh, you would say. So uh, people were, uh, confined to their homes and we couldn't run school. We were really worried that without this support that we would just see children go back to the street en masse and we'd lose all this ground we'd gained over the years. But our teachers kicked into gear and said, not on our watch, we're going to make it work. All right. Um, now, I know a lot of your kids maybe did school at home, computer, Zoom, all of that. Uh, we didn't have that luxury. Um, so they sent worksheets home and got on phone with them, right? Dumb phones. And even if the family didn't have a phone, they'd go and steal the neighbor's phone for half a day and drain the battery while they did lessons online. And they did it for our whole school. 
to keep kids in the home and in families. Uh, and that was in addition to keeping food in home so that uh, kids wouldn't have to go elsewhere to look for food. Women's training. Um, you would have seen in that video a lot of the women that we were talking about there. There are young women in our village who never progressed to high school and just felt worthless. Um, you see everyone else advancing past you in society. You think, how am I going to make it? How am I going to get a start in life? I really am worthless. And families in the community would see them that way. And a lot of these young women had no other choice but to be domestic servants. Right? Paid almost nothing. Uh, in many cases, nothing. Just so they could eat. Uh, and once we got a hold of that information, the team kicked into gear and said, not on our watch, not in our village. And we said, how are we going to get them here? Right? How are we going to convince people to let them have the person that's illegally serving in their house um, without putting everyone at extreme danger, um, let alone the woman who has told us about the situation? So we came up with a clever idea. Mm. And we started running an early childhood certificate. So we could go to households and say, you've got a girl who's looking after your child, but she's untrained. Give her to us for three months and we'll train her in early childhood, in early childcare. And that was the incentive for people to release them to us. And we got them for three months. And in that three months, we got to understand exactly what was going on in that family. And we started doing home visits just to let people know, oh, this is how your girl's doing. This is her performance. This is what she's learning. And by getting into the home, we were able to start addressing what was going on there. By the end, we got a lot of them, most of them, mm. paid or released. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, we have one video of uh, a graduation. Can we play that? So, knowing where they've come from, have a look at this video of graduation day, if we can. And so it's not just the girls that we, we bring, we invite the community, we say, you bring family. We want them to watch how wonderful you are. And over and over, parents will come to us and say, that's my child, that's my child. Something they'd never said before. In so many cases, they say, I had no idea what they could achieve. I'm putting them in school. Yeah. So many, over and over and over again. Because God loves people. God puts his power on us for a purpose, and that purpose is people. Joyous praise instead of sorrow. We're seeing it. So coronavirus hit us in March. Country went into lockdown, and we were stuck on this side of the world. We are about 
people on the outside of society, we're about kids, we're about young women. We are not an emergency relief organisation. It's not who we are, not what we do. But our team started to see suffering immediately on a large scale. Most people in our village live day to day. They work that day, they eat that day. That's how it works. They were prevented from working and almost immediately we started seeing mass starvation across our village. Now, they understand that God's power is on us because we are believers for a purpose and that purpose is people. They said no one else is doing anything. It must be us. If, if God's people are in the midst of suffering, it's not for us to look around and say who's coming. Mm -hmm. They know it's us. It's us. Now, we didn't have budget, we didn't have strategy, we didn't have resources to be able to respond on any scale, except for maybe a couple of hundred families. It's probably what we could have handled. Um, but together with the team, we came to the decision very quickly, I guess we're going to do this. And we announced we're going to feed the whole village. So we found 9,000 homes, visited 9,000 homes on foot. So our staff is 10 young women. We got to every single home, 9,000 homes on foot, met with every single person in the village, 35,000 people. And we didn't have a budget to do it, but we said we're going to do it. Right. God's power. God's power, DLC. Does God care about the hungry? You bet he does. Does he care when someone has a pain in their stomach and they can't eat and they're stressed? They don't know, how am I going to feed my kids? Does God care about that? You bet he does. So this year, some unqualified, unequipped people uh, pulled off the largest feeding in the whole country of Lesotho, flawlessly. No one missed out. No one got two. Everyone got food. No violence, nothing. In a climate where uh, government feeding trucks were turned away from feeding sites, guarded by soldiers and police because there was too much rioting, the favour of God came a flawless and peaceful feeding. This is what happens when we understand I'm not much, but my God is. My God cares about people. Jesus coming on the earth, his life, his death, and his resurrection means that there is a new order. This suffering does not reign. The devil does not rule. God's order is above all of it. And we are here to stand here and say, God, will you use me? Will you put your power on me? With all my faults, will you put your power on me for the people that you love so much? I'm just going to leave, leave you with one. Mm. I'd like you to think back to David and Goliath for a moment. Because what Goliath represented was not a problem. He was an impossibility. Okay? He was enormous. He was covered from head to toe in armour. And he defied God and God's people day after day after day. And they were terrified of him. But there was one person that God had prepared. And that God brought to see this defiance on the battlefield. And that person was nothing special. But that person saw things through eyes that knew the power of God. And when he saw the same giant that had defied armies of people, this is how he responded. David said to the Philistine, you come against me 
with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. This very day, I will give you carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All of those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. So when we see something that looks impossible, it very well might be. It might actually be impossible. But we serve a God who creates a way when there is none. So if you hit a situation or if you see a situation where you know nothing can be done, perhaps, perhaps nothing can be done. But we stand in faith knowing that when nothing can be got done, God makes a way. And it is not by might and it is not by power and it is not by intelligence. It is by his word and by his favour and by his anointing. And if we as his people will allow him to put that anointing on us, if we will carry it into those situations that are impossible, he will outwork his plans. And the whole world will know there is a God in heaven and he cares for people and nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is impossible for him. So now we just want to take a special moment. Nothing's impossible. I first want to speak to a group of people. You might be in the room. And it might be your first time to church. It might be your second or third. And you'd be honest enough to say that your life is not right with God. You would say that you're far from God. God loves you so much. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and to rise from the dead so that you would not have to live in your sin or be punished according to your sin. He loves you and he wants you to come to heaven with him when you die and celebrate with him for eternity. And you think, I don't deserve that. You're absolutely right. None of us deserve that. None of us deserve the goodness of God. Today, if you feel, you know what, that is me. I feel far from God. I've been living a life that's far from Him. I want to invite you today to get your life right with God. What I'm going to do in just a minute is I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes in just a minute. And if that's you, I'm just going to get you to lift up your hand to show me, yep, I want to get my life right with God. And we're going to pray. That act of lifting up your hand and saying, I want to get my life right with God. I want my sins forgiven. I believe that Jesus died and took my sins. That act of belief is enough for you to be saved. That's enough for you to be forgiven. And that's enough for your eternity to be secure, to know that when you die, you go to heaven. It's that simple. And that's how good our God is. So can I ask everyone to close your eyes? And I don't want to draw this out, but if you're just honest enough to say, I'm far from God, I don't know him. And I, I want him to forgive my sins. Can I just ask you to lift up your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'm going to pray with you. Yeah. Thank you. I see your hand. Is there anyone else? Just 
church, I'll ask you to open your eyes. If you were too shy to lift up your hand, you can pray this prayer along with us. It's okay. (laughs) You haven't missed out. If you can pray this prayer and believe it, that's enough too. So let's all pray together. Father in heaven, I know I'm not good enough. I know I've sinned. I know even on my best day, I can't please you. But I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his perfect life, his death for me, and his resurrection. Today, I say, you are my father. I'm your child, and I believe that I'm forgiven because of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's celebrate together, church.